0: The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. So we're going to be turning to the book of Hebrews, to the book of Hebrews, and we all get now the privilege of starting a new series in the book of Hebrews, and I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, but Derek, you must be confused. Because we were in Luke. Yes. yes. And yes, we were. And here's here's what we're going to do. Cliff had brought this up to me uh, a few weeks ago, and I thought it was a great idea, right on the face of it. He suggested that we consider not only preaching through one book, but preaching through two books in the main worship service. So when Cliff preaches, he is going to preach through Luke. And when I preach, I'm going to th- preach through Hebrews. Because we want to be able to give the body... A greater breadth of the whole counsel of God and we think that will work out well for him preaching through Luke and then me preaching through Hebrews and it's also helpful because then as preachers we can prepare in a way that we think is most beneficial see that's when Cliff came to me with this idea it was premised with we need to always be thinking about what is best for the body as we consider how we are preaching to you and feeding you the Word of God we're always keeping in mind what's best in light of God's glory, what is best for the, the body? And we believe this is what is best, but it's also helpful as preachers because we can now plan in a way, in where the text that we're preaching through, in a way that we think will most benefit you. And, and in all, also, it helps us in our preparation. Just as an example, Cliff and I would sit down and list out about three months' worth of passages of, in Luke that we were planning to preach through. And so we would assign these passages to me and these passages to Cliff, and they'd be in order and so on. Well, if you're preaching and then you realize I'm not going to make it through what I need to make it through. Well, too bad because next week, Cliff, Derek is preaching and you've got to wrap it up. And so and then me, I would be preaching. I'm like, oh, I'd really like to have more than one week on this. Well, that's just too bad because Cliff is coming after me. And so this actually gives us a little more room to be able to structure each message in a way that we think is best for you and best for your learning of God's Word. So the plan is now, Cliff, when he preaches, he'll be preaching through Luke. When I preach, I'll be preaching through Hebrews. Of course, we might have a smattering of topical messages as they are needed, but that is now the plan. So we are going to begin today the uh, book of, of Hebrews, or the letter to the Hebrews, rather, and i will now be preaching this week and then the next 3 weeks so we'll get a, get a good ways into the book of hebrews in the next over the next month or so so that is the plan and i hope you all are on board with that i've shared it with a few of you as said this is the plan and a number of you have responded that that you like that plan and you're excited about it so this week what i want to do is i want to take you through a few elementary or introductory uh, points of the letter to the hebrews And then next week, we'll begin in the text of chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. So today, just a few introductory points, but we will be taking these introductory points and also going into the text of Hebrews itself here and there through the various chapters. But today is introduction. I want to introduce you to a few important features of this letter. And the first thing I want us to recognize is that this is a letter whose author is unknown to us. He's unknown to us. We don't have certainty about who it is. And I remember teaching this letter. I've taught it a few times, and now I get the privilege of preaching it to the congregation, which I'm really thrilled about. But in times past when I've taught it, I've had some people suggest to me that they are quite certain they know who the author is. And uh, they, this particular person I'm thinking of, I would we kind of in a team teaching model, and I'd get up and I'd teach through Hebrews, and I'd say something about, we don't know who the author is. And he'd get up next week, and you'd say, well, I'm pretty certain I know who it is. And he thought it was Paul. Well, we don't know who it is. Uh, bottom line, some people say Paul due to his theology and the author's handling of the Old Testament. Uh, some say that it was an associate of Paul like Silas or Epaphras. It's a possibility. Some say that due to the, the Greek syntax and structure that it was Luke, and because Luke was also a companion of Paul, he could have gotten all this theology from Paul. It's a possibility. Now, someone has written an entire book, book, uh, uh, multi-chapter book trying to defend the idea that it's Luke but at the end you don't have certainty you just have probability so so much for that book um, some say that it was Barnabas because Tertullian a uh, church father in the third century said it was Barnabas but he never offered an argument he just said it's Barnabas right yeah. so some suggest Barnabas others say Apollos because he was a co-worker with Paul and he was educated and knowledgeable of the scriptures and again a lot of this is just conjecture we just don't know in the final analysis we are not sure who wrote the book of hebrews there's no conclusive set of data one way or the other we do know that this author had a connection with timothy he says that in hebrews 13 23 so he wasn't unknown to the leaders of the early church in fact the letter to the hebrews was accepted as apostolic not because it was written by an apostle, but because it accurately communicated the apostolic tradition by someone who clearly had connection with eyewitnesses. A letter didn't need to be written by an apostle to be accepted as canonical. When I use that word canonical, I simply mean accepted as God's word. This is the biblical canon. We accept these books as the word of God. A letter didn't need to be written by an apostle to be accepted as canonical. Luke wasn't an apostle, yet his book is in our Bibles. It's considered God's word. It is God's word. But a letter only needed to accurately represent an apost- the apostolic teaching, and Hebrews certainly does. And the author, like Luke, had a connection to the eyewitnesses. Let's look over here in chapter 2. He says... Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received its just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. See? See? This gospel, this great salvation, declared first by the Lord and then attested to us by those who heard it. So he's making a connection with these eyewitnesses, while God also bore witnesses by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts by the, of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. By noting that this great salvation was preached by Christ and attested to, uh, by those who had heard, the author of Hebrews is claiming a connection to those first eyewitnesses and therefore claiming that he is communicating the same message. He is joining himself with these eyewitnesses and saying, I am preaching and teaching the same message. When it comes to the actual author, though, we just don't know who it is. We just we don't know. So anybody walking around with dogmatic certainty on this issue is simply not following the actual evidence that we have. But that should not cause anybody in here any consternation. It should cause no Christian any concern that we don't know who this author is. Remember, I already said that a letter didn't need to be written by an uh, an apostle for it to be accepted as God's Word. We know who the divine author was. It was God himself through his Holy Spirit. That's why the book of Hebrews is in your Bible today, and it's why for the last two millennia, Christians have received this letter to the Hebrews as God's written revelation. Why? Why? Because God's indwelling spirit enables the corporate church to recognize the divine nature and the divine author of this letter. The scriptures have a self-authenticating nature. What do you need to recognize God's word? You need the spirit of God and you need God's word. And you are able to recognize what God's word is and, and what it is not. If a letter is God-breathed, it will be recognized by the church as God's word precisely because it is God-breathed. Contrary to the way the Roman Catholic Church understands these things, the church does not determine what books belong in the Bible. We didn't determine what books belong in the Bible. What the church does with the indwelling Holy Spirit is discover what books belong in the Bible. We discover by the way God has given us his word and then enabled us by his Holy Spirit to receive that word, we discover the words that are in fact God-breathed, the letters that are in fact God-breathed as they are written and read and used throughout the church. You know, as I th- thought about this issue is why, why did God not allow the name of the author of, to the letter of Hebrews to be passed down from generation to generation? It's possible that God did this and precisely to get our attention fixed on the nature of scripture as god's as god breathes revelation this is what i mean the ultimate reason why any book is included in the bible is because it is breathed out by god not finally because the church decided to put it in there or because it was penned by one of the apostles paul was an apostle and we know he wrote more letters that are in the than are in the new testament why was his why were those letters not included in the new testament because they weren't breathed out by God, that's why, though they were written by an apostle. The letter to the Hebrews doesn't have an identifiable human author. It did have a human author, we just don't know who it was. But that is no barrier to it being accepted as Scripture because it is God-breathed, written revelation that God's people can corporately recognize as such and has recognized as such for the last two millennia. The church has received this letter to the Hebrews as God's word. Why? Because it's breathed out by God. And we're able to recognize it by that indwelling Holy Spirit. Another piece that's interesting. The author himself, when referring to other books of the Bible, like in the Old Testament, we're going to find out that this is a letter steeped in the Old Testament. But when the author is referring to Old Testament letters he never refers to the human author interestingly he'll say things like the holy spirit says when he's quoting psalm 95 he doesn't say the psalmist says he doesn't say the psalms say he says the holy spirit says when he's quoting psalm 95 and hebrews 3 7 when he's quoting jeremiah 31 33 in chapter 8 i believe i didn't write it down in chapter 8 he says quote the holy spirit also bears witness to us for after saying and then he goes on and quotes the book of jeremiah doesn't say jeremiah he says the holy spirit very simply in the author's mind when you are reading the old testament you are reading god's very words breathed out by the holy spirit that's how he views the old testament he says he says referring to god in hebrews chapter 4 verse 3 chapter 4 verse 5 and chapter 8 verse 8 he attributes the words from Psalm 22 and the words from Psalm 40 to Jesus. <clears throat> In no place does the author of Hebrews, when quoting the Old Testament Scripture, make reference to the human author. Sometimes we get a, just a generic reference like this. This is funny. In chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, he says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. And then he's going about to go on to quote Psalm 8, but before he does, he says, It has been testified somewhere. And you're thinking did you not know where it was and you know that's not the case because he is so skilled with the old testament he knew exactly what he was quoting he knew that this was a psalm and he knew where it was found in the old testament context but he just it just says somewhere why because what matters is that it's god's word and i always i'll I'll say to this you know uh i've got people in my life who will say doesn't it say somewhere in the scripture and i and i'll say don't get, don't be hard on those people because that's what the author of hebrews said so when someone says does it say somewhere in the bible well now sometimes they're not quoting it right uh, the, the author of hebrews isn't guilty of that but uh he does say it says somewhere and i just find that to be not only uh, a little funny but also interesting he is treating the old testament as god's word so he doesn't need to bring to mind the human authors he can just say god's word or it's quoted somewhere For the author of Hebrews, scripture is God's very word. The human author isn't ultimately that important. We're not disparaging the human author. God uses human instruments to accomplish his will, and it's a glorious thing. And a number of the letters of the New Testament and the Old Testament, we know who wrote them. But here it seems that we have an emphasis on this reality that a human author isn't ultimately who is most important. Who's most important? The divine author who breathed out these words. These words are ultimately God's words. And sometimes I think we need to be reminded of that. We talk about Paul, and we talk about Peter, and Peter wrote and Paul wrote, and I do this all the time. Ultimately, it is God's word. We're not preaching some opinion from Paul or some opinion from Peter. We are preaching the word of God. So... Because of the way the author of Hebrews treats the Old Testament scriptures, it isn't surprising that his own letter would make its way from generation to generation without his name. So that's, that's my suggestion for one reason why we don't have the author's name. So it's a letter about whom we don't know li- very little about the, the author, but, but also is a letter written around 60 A.D. It's written about 60 A.D., and the reason why Bible interpreters land on this date is because the, the, the broadest range could be between about 60 AD to 90 AD. But I think there's enough evidence to show that it's likely written before 70 AD. And the biggest piece of evidence for that is because the author talks about the sacrificial rituals as though they were still happening. And in 70 A.D., when the Roman general Titus came in and decimated Jerusalem and decimated the temple after a a Jewish revolt that had caused some trouble and, and caused Roman to really Rome, the uh, Roman uh, gen, uh, government to really clamp down on Jerusalem, they they had come in and just wiped out uh, Jerusalem and the temple. And, and but prior to that, the temple would have been functioning and the sacrificial system would have been functioning. And the author of Hebrews is is exhorting these Jewish Christians to not go back to the the old sacrificial system. He's talking about it in ways that makes it seem like it's still happening or still could be functioning. And it would be strange if the temple had been destroyed at this point because that would have actually really strengthened his argument. One of the main things that the author of Hebrews is saying to his listeners is the Old Testament sacrificial system is useless Christ is the fulfillment of all of these things. If you turn back to the old covenant system, you no longer have atonement. The old covenant system was temporary. And how easy would it have been to say that, look, it was temporary. And it just so happens that the temple has been destroyed. See? Right? But he doesn't mention the destruction of the temple, which happened at A.D. 70. So likely this was written sometime In 60 AD, sometime between 60 and 69 AD. And that's the position that I take. It's also a letter that was likely a sermon. It's a letter that was likely a sermon. There's some evidence, there's a fair amount of evidence in uh, the book of Hebrews that it was a sermon. One piece is that it just begins abruptly, just starts with the subject matter without any introduction of the author. Any reference to the recipients, no greeting, and just boom, all of a sudden we are right into the sermon. Today I didn't step up and say hi again. My name is Derek, and I'm addressing this the church at CBC and give you this. I just got right into here, we're going to be preaching Hebrews and, and we're off to the races. The author does that very thing here, so that gives rise to the interpretation that this was originally a sermon. You do have at the end of it, though, some elements of a letter like a final benediction, a final blessing. And the author himself says this in Hebrews 13, 22, I appeal to you, brothers, bear, uh, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. So he even says, you know, I'm, I'm writing to you. But this word for exhortation is the same word that was used for Paul's sermon in Acts thirteen fifteen to in Pisidian Antioch, which gives some evidence that this was a sermon. And importantly, this is really important, this letter to the Hebrews is full of exhortations and warnings that are a little more fitting for a sermon than they would be for some sort of simple letter. So we are to view this letter, and and as we'll get into it, one of the things I'll even mention is that this, this book has some remarkably complex Greek structure, language. It's very polished in some parts which is why some people say it was Luke. But ultimately, this book is not given or this letter was not written as a theological essay. Its aim is vitally pastoral, and that's how we are going to treat it. It's not a theological essay or treatise, although it has some of the most sublime theological statements you'll find in the Bible, particularly about Jesus Christ and what he's done. But it's not ultimately some sort of theological treatise. Listen to how one commentator describes it and describes the author's aim in writing the letter to the Hebrews. Quote, The author isn't attempting to amaze us with his theological sophistication, which there is a fair amount of. His understanding of the relationship between the relationship, uh, the understanding of the relationship between the Old Covenant and the New, his reading of the Levitical and Melchizedekian priesthoods, and his construal of the Old and New Covenant sacrifices. These are a number of things that he does deal with in detail, and they are complex and weighty. But he writes for a practical reason, which becomes evident when we observe the warning passages that permeate the letter. The author has a very clear, unmistakable pastoral point. All of that theology serves a pastoral point. In fact, and and honestly, that's what theology should do. It should always serve a pastoral point. And this is what it is it's for every single one of us. He is urgently exhorting his readers and his listeners to not fall away from Jesus because if they do, they will incur eternal condemnation. The pastoral warning, the pastoral point is to his readers and listeners and all of us today to not fall away from Jesus. Because if we do, we will incur eternal condemnation. And if that sounds a little jarring to you, that's okay. We are going to give careful attention to this pastoral aim. It's going to be one of the main things we give our attention to as we walk through this book, this letter, chapter by chapter. Because we need to see how what I just said ties into the doctrine of eternal security. Which is what made my statement I just made a little jarring in some of your minds and hearts. You mean, wait, you're telling me to not fall away from Jesus because I would incur eternal condemnation if I fall away from Jesus? Wait, I thought we were eternally secure. Well, you are. He is not suggesting that a true believer can forfeit their salvation. But we'll talk about precisely why he gives such warnings in a few minutes. This is also a letter written to a group of Jewish Christians. One thing that becomes rather clear, and when we're trying to understand the context of these letters, you have to be kind of reading between the lines, so to speak. You, 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 You are reading what they've written and then try to surmise from that what was actually going on. And it appears that you have a group of Jewish Christians who are being tempted to go back to the old Jewish rituals through persecution. That's what appears to be happening. The phrase, the letter of the Hebrews, is attached to the earliest manuscript copies of the letter. And you can see that this is someone who is likely writing to Jewish Christians because of how much he utilizes the Old Testament in his argument where were these readers located well one idea is that they were lo- located in italy because the author says in uh thir- chapter 13 verse 24 he says those who come from italy send you greetings and so the idea is like if he's writing to people in italy he's saying i have some people from italy who are with me who are not presently in italy and they send you greetings so it's one possibility that they were in italy the immediate context is one of persecution and this becomes pretty clear especially in hebrews chapter 10 32 through 35 as we'll see in a moment the listeners had already endured persecution and it appears that they were tempted to find a way to escape persecution by going back to judaism go back to the old testament sacrificial system the old covenant system That's why the author labors so carefully throughout this letter to convince them that the old covenant system is done. It is futile. It is over. To go back to that would be to go back to no atonement. To go back to that would mean that you've given up Christ. You've given up salvation. These believers must hold fast their faith in Christ and not give up We even read that this morning. This sweet passage of scripture that we read about the ability for us to draw near to the throne of grace is prefaced this way. Let us hold fast our confession. That is what he is writing to these listeners to do. Hold fast. Fast your confession. You're being tempted to walk away from Jesus. You're being tempted to compromise. You're being tempted to to turn away from Jesus in order to avoid the pain of persecution. Hold fast your confession. Don't give in and don't give up. Notice what he says here in chapter ten, verses thirty two and thirty five. Chapter ten, verses thirty two and thirty five uh, through thirty five. <clears throat> this is why we know this is the context was persecution. He says. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence... Hold fast your confession, in other words, which has a great reward for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. If this letter was written to Jewish believers in Rome, it might be the case that these Christians were tempted to go back to Judaism because at that time, Judaism was still a legal religion within the Roman Empire. Could be. Either way, we can be confident that this letter is written to Jewish believers who are being tempted through persecution to forsake Christ and go back to the Jewish system. It's not to say that Gentiles weren't among them. I, I would venture to say that there, in fact, were Gentiles among them. But the predominant audience are those who have familiar, familiar, great familiarity with the Old Testament and likely Jews. However, here's the good news. The ethnic composition of this group of people to whom the author is writing is does not really affect our interpretation of the book, of the letter. We will be able to clearly understand what the author is teaching and apply it to our lives regardless of the ethnicity or the religious background of the original recipients. Isn't that great news? So we don't even need to solve that problem, though I think we can be on pretty safe ground to say this is predominantly a Jewish group of Christians but as we go through it we'll be able to interpret the text and apply it to us who are in a very different setting and as we read you might find out not too different but we'll save that for a little bit so it's written to Jewish believers it's a written whose author is not known to us but it's also a letter steeped in the Old Testament and you can already tell even when you open the first page of Hebrews, you're reading in your Bible and all of a sudden, boom, you're confronted with just a myriad of texts from the Old Testament. And what I like to do is I like to write in the margin where this actually came from. If you don't have that information in your Bibles or if it's in the, one of those little letters that has you go down and look at the references and you've got to get your glasses on to even see what they are, I like to write it a little bigger in the margins. And then when you do that, you can see... He starts right off by quoting Psalm 2, 2 Samuel 7, Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 104, verse 4, Psalm 45, Isaiah 61, uh, Psalm 102, and Psalm 110. And I'm not even out of the first chapter. This is a book that is steeped in the Old Testament. And that would make sense, of course, if he's writing to Jewish Christians. But one thing is he, he is trying to do is to convince these listeners that the old covenant system itself had a built-in expiration date Jesus Christ has fulfilled the entire old covenant system and itself in its own documents tells you that it was only supposed to be temporary that is what he is trying to convince these listeners of that old covenant system that you're tempted to go back to it itself tells you that it was supposed to be temporary And to be fulfilled by something else. In order to keep these persecuted Jewish Christians from turning their back on Christ and returning to the sacrificial system, the author had to show them conclusively from the Old Covenant system, in fact, from the Old Covenant documents themselves, that it was always intended to be temporary with the coming of the messiah the old covenant sacrificial system has been done away with why because it has been fulfilled in jesus they were always meant to be pictures of the coming messiah that's all now that the reality is here you don't go back to the picture if you're waiting for your fiance to come back from a long trip or your wife to come back from a long trip and you have this picture on your iPhone you continue to look at and look at, and you're just longing for them to come back, and they step off the plane, it doesn't make any sense for you to stay stuck to your phone looking at the picture, because they're right here. In fact, it would cause great offense to the person as they're standing right there, because you are looking at the picture. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant sacrificial system was a picture and nothing more. A picture meant to lead you to Christ. They are no longer useful. Turn, to turn from Christ to such sacrifices, such sacrifices is, as he says in chapter 10, verse 29, is to trample underfoot the Son of God. It's not a minor mistake. It's not a minor mistake to go back to the sacrificial system. It's to trample underfoot the blood of Christ and to say, eh, one way or the other, I'll, I'll get to heaven. Overall, the author of Hebrews quotes the Old Testament directly 27 times. But that's not even the entire picture. He gives a lengthy account of Israel's rebellion in the wilderness and applies that past event to these people's current situation. That's chapter 3. He gives a long, detailed explanation of how Jesus relates to the Old Testament in the character of Melchizedek. And that's chapters 5 through 7. And that is actually going to be a glorious study that I'm really excited about. Perhaps in the past you've read about Melchizedek and you're like, I don't even know. What he's talking about and it's pretty detailed but i want us to see that the author is saying if you read the old testament right you will see in the old testament itself that it was always meant to be temporary it's setting you up for the coming messiah it's setting you itself up for its expiration he talks at length about the old covenant sacrificial system in chapters 8 through 10 and then in chapter 11 he gives examples of old testament characters who exemplified the life of faith Throughout the book, there are all kinds of allusions to the Old Testament when he's not using direct quotation. You can say without hesitation that the letter to the Hebrews is a divinely inspired exposition of nearly the entire Old Testament. It's pretty awesome. But he's not limiting his exhortation to merely Jewish Christians. As we will see, this applies directly to us, even immediately. We don't have to be in their particular situation to receive exhortation from this book next is it's a letter that exalts the supremacy of Jesus Christ that is the theme throughout this book it is exalting the supremacy of Jesus Christ The author's goal in making a strong and detailed appeal to the Old Testament is to exalt the glory and majesty and sufficiency of Jesus Christ over all things, including the Old Covenant system, the Old Covenant leaders, even the angels. The aim to showcase the glory of Jesus Christ really is the central theme of the book of Hebrews. In the first chapter, the author labors to establish the godhood of the Son of God. That's where we'll start next week. Just text after text after text to display before our eyes that Jesus Christ is God and you can worship him wholeheartedly without any hesitation, wondering, is this okay? Can I worship Jesus? Yes, you can. Yes, you must. That's chapter one. And then in chapter two, the author explains in detail how Jesus is the perfect man, right? So you go from perfect God to perfect man in chapter two, who, and he has tasted death for all of his people. And he's able to do that because he is the perfect man. And then chapter 3, we see that he is superior to Moses. Chapters 4 and 5, we see that he is the sympathetic high priest who, is, who sympathizes with all our weaknesses yet without sin, so we can lean on him and go to him to enable us to persevere through suffering and through sin. In chapters 6 and 7, we learn that Jesus' priesthood is better and more permanent than the Levitical priesthood. In chapter 8, we learn that Jesus is the priest of a better covenant, a new covenant. In chapters 9 and 10, we see that Jesus' sacrifice is the final sacrifice. And not only that, but he is the high priest who takes the sacrifice into the holy place, the holy of holies. Chapter 12, Jesus is the object of our faith. He's the author and finisher and the author and perfecter of our faith. In chapter 13, he's the great shepherd who is risen from the dead through whom we we live a life pleasing to God. So you can't read the book of Hebrews and not conclude that this is all about exalting the sufficiency in the glory of Jesus Christ. And I hope that's what we will be left with week after week as we make our way through this book. And if we haven't, then I haven't done my job. We badly miss the point of this letter if we don't see the supremacy of Christ through it. But, again, this exalted vision of Jesus throughout the letter is not meant to merely enable us to scratch a theological itch and go, hmm, that was interesting. Now on to lunch. Or become mere banter for some abstract Christological conversations. The author has a serious and pointed pastoral aim with exalting Christ throughout this letter. Here it is. Because Christ is so wonderful and so glorious and so sufficient, take care that you do not fall away from him. That is the message of Hebrews, by and large. Jesus is wonderful. Don't walk away from him. Jesus is glorious and sufficient. Don't go anywhere else looking for any way or means of atonement. If you do, you will face eternal judgment. And that leads us in now to the last point. This is a letter of serious joy. Serious joy. And I'm choosing my words very carefully here. The author of Hebrews wants every person in here he wanted, every person he wrote to, to be eternally happy. He wants us to experience exquisite joy, not what he will call later the fleeting pleasures of sin. That's in Hebrews 13, or I'm sorry, Hebrews 11:25. 25. He's not interested in feeding you with frivolous, superficial, temporal levity, which is basically the sum and the substance of nearly all counsel we get in the world, isn't it? He wants, you, he wants to give you enduring, everlasting, deep joy. But in order to get us there, we need to take some things very seriously and we are just conditioned to think that there is a necessary contradiction between joy or happiness i just i use those words interchangeably a necessary contradiction between joy and happiness and seriousness basically the conclusion is if you're serious you're not happy nothing could be farther from the truth especially when it comes to eternal realities you could think about it in temporal realities too someone who wants to experience the joy of athletic accomplishment. There's plenty of joy to be had in athletic accomplishment. Now, I didn't experience all that joy, except for in eighth grade when I kind of peaked, and then I was just mediocre from that point on. (laughs) But there is joy to be experienced in athletic accomplishment. But in order to get there, you have to take your training absolutely seriously, or you're not going to get there. You got to be serious about something, or you won't have that joy of having really accomplished something athletically the same thing goes for the author writing to his people there's no necessary contradiction between joy and taking something seriously in fact you won't be really happy the way god intends for you to be happy unless you take the issues of this book seriously if we heed the words of this book we will experience a deep and unshakable and lasting joy there are some really sharp and serious and sobering words in this book It has, at my count, one, two, three, four, five really serious warnings. The warnings you can find in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, chapter 3, verses 12 through 15, chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, chapter 10, verses uh, 26 through 31, chapter 12, verses 12 through 29. And you could even divide possibly 12 into 2 so that you have 6. He will offer, I would say, some of the most sharp, Warnings in all the New Testament. The kind of warnings that shake you to your boots. But these warnings are not intended to make you somber or morose or doubting or glum. Let me say that again. These sobering, sharp, and serious words are not intended to make you somber or morose or doubting or glum like an evangelical Eeyore. He's my least favorite character in all of literature. Sorry for you, Winnie the Pooh fans. These somber—I'm sorry—these sobering, sharp, and serious words are intended to set you on a path of genuine assurance and faith in Christ. That's what the warnings are intended to do. Listen to the way he ends—he he ends one of his warnings in chapter six. Probably the most brutal warning in this book is Hebrews chapter six. And he ended up this way. And we desire each of you to show the same earnestness to have full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He wants you to experience the full assurance of salvation in Christ for your whole time on earth so that you will inherit the promises. Inherit what promises? The promises of final salvation. The promises of final salvation. And this is an important category for us to develop as we study through the book of Hebrews. We tend to think of salvation as a point in time event. And indeed it is. Okay? So this is a clear biblical teaching. You remember Paul's promise to the jailer in Acts 16? He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe, belief in Christ, salvation. Boom. Right? It's one of the distinctives of Christianity. You don't have to work for it. It's faith in Christ, salvation. Or another text, Titus chapter 3, verses 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, past tense, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Salvation occurred for you at the moment you believed and you are regenerated by the Holy Spirit and justified in the name of Jesus Christ. But the author of this letter to the Hebrews emphasizes... He's not discounting what I just said about that point-in-time salvation, but he's emphasizing the future nature of our salvation. We would call this final salvation. We are not yet to our final home. Agreed? Anyone want to dispute that? <laughs> we are not yet to our final home. We are saved, but there's still more to come. We are You can say we are saved and we will be saved. That's why Jesus could use language like this. The one who endures till the end will be saved. Right? We are saved. We will be saved. And the author of Hebrews underscores the necessity of making it all the way to the end of our race so that we don't fall away and forfeit heaven. Again, the author of Hebrews is not teaching that a genuine Christian can lose his or her salvation. But we do need to recognize that true faith is not something that we just do once and then move on with the rest of our life. If we've truly believed in Christ, we will continue to believe in him for the rest of our lives. If you trust in Christ and you have saving faith, you will continue to believe in Christ for the rest of your life. But here's the question I want you to ponder as we work our way through this letter. The question we have to answer is, how does God Keep us believing how does God keep us believing by what means does God keep us believing in real time not in abstraction but in real time how does he keep us believing? Yes, God protects and upholds the faith of the believer. but how does he do it? if you're a Christian here today, you're not a believer you're not you're not believing right now because of your willpower as though you are just willed it to happen. I am not going to, I'm going to keep believing. I'm not going to fall away. You're not believing by sheer, sheer willpower. And, and praise God for that, because if it was left up to my willpower, I would have stopped believing right after I first believed because I know my sin and I know my own temptations. No, it is God who keeps us believing. It is God who protects and upholds our faith. That is the clear teaching of the New Testament, Romans eight. 28 through 39 is an excellent text to go through go through to learn this very truth it is god who protects our faith who upholds our faith even in the worst of difficulties when you think my faith will certainly fail all this trouble and sorrow and trials and suffering it's going to rob me of my faith i no romans 8 28 through 39 says no god will protect it god will protect your faith but the same paul who wrote that also said i have kept the faith So we must keep believing. The question is, is how does God keep us believing? One of the important ways that God, through the author of Hebrews, keeps us on the narrow path of faith, here it is, is by using sharp warnings of what happens if we come off the narrow path of faith. One of the ways that God keeps you and me believing is by giving us warnings of what will happen if we stop believing. It's it's incredibly wise. It works like this. And this is a little illustration that I've thought over and thought over and thought over that I hope gives you some light as we make our way through this book and try to understand how to apply these warnings to our present life and situation. Here's the illustration. Say I'm hiking with the family, okay? And we're hiking along, and we're gaining some elevation. We've been on the trail for a while, now we're gaining some pretty serious elevation. And now the trail transitions to a pretty narrow section. And we're on a pretty narrow ridgeline, and we've got drop-offs on both sides, pretty steep, pretty treacherous, a lot of rock fall, not a lot of trees to break the fall. And, and if you go off on either side, you're going to be really hurt. So that's the section. We come up on this section. It's narrow, narrow sharp ridgeline, drop-offs on both sides. And I turn to Ellie. And I look her, and I get down on one knee, and I look at her, and I get really serious for a moment. And I say, Eliana, you can make it through this, but look at me. You have to hold my hand. Do not let go. If you let go, you will fall off on either side and you will get badly hurt. Look at me. Do not let go of my hand. I'm really serious. Why? Because I'm mean? No, because I want her to get her to the other side. That's why. Don't let go of my hand. And when we make it to the end, then you will have a beautiful view of the valley and you'll get to eat those really good cookies with the frosting with the little sprinkles, you know which ones I'm talking about? The, the mother's ones, you know, the animal cracker ones with the frosting and the sprinkling? They, you could have to eat the whole bag. Those ones, you get those ones, okay? And she's like, yes, it's the best reward ever, right? But you have to hold my hand. If you let go, it will be a disaster for everyone, okay? She looks to me. She trusts my word. She hears the warning. She holds my hand. We make it all the way. But the warning was a real warning. That's why she didn't let go. That is the way that these warnings are meant to be used and the, the, the way they function in the life of the believer. God is giving them to you to keep you believing. And you know what it takes? It takes some sharp words of what happens if you let go. That's how these Warnings are meant to function in the life of the believer. They are not meant to get you to doubt your salvation or to have no assurance and walk around in all kinds of doubt. They're intended to do the exact opposite, to get you to have real, not false, but real assurance. How you understand the nature of these warnings and how they apply to us is, in my judgment, after many years of studying and wrestling over and teaching this book, how you understand and apply these warnings is one of the, if not the, primary way that Bible interpreters get the interpretation of Hebrews wrong. And sometimes, they, and sometimes they get it really, really wrong, and it causes a lot of trouble for people. In fact, just to let you behind the curtain a little bit, in my own life, it is no exaggeration to say that a misinterpretation of Hebrews 6 and some other things, but one of the main things was a misinterpretation of Hebrews chapter 6 kept me out of school for a full eight months i had to take a semester off because i was so deeply depressed about my spiritual condition i was convinced i couldn't be saved why because i had a misunderstanding of hebrews chapter 6 taught by a christian teacher that had wedged its way deep into my soul that i could not shake and it kept me at home for eight months unable to even go back to college because i couldn't even think straight because of misinterpretation of one of the most important pieces of Hebrew, So I have a vested interest in making sure we get this right. And making sure that you get it right. Because when you get it wrong, it has the, the tendency to really undermine your faith. So by God's grace, I pray that we will have real clarity on what these warnings mean and how to apply them. With the goal of deepening your assurance. And if there is someone here who has a false assurance... ...to then get you to have real assurance in Christ. That's the goal of the the book of Hebrews. The warnings are meant to serve that pastoral goal for you and for me. So next week, if you want to turn back to chapter 1 now, next week... ...chapter 1, we will begin our trek through the letter to the Hebrews... And if you would just indulge me again, another hiking illustration. <laughs> when, you, when you're going hiking, you need to usually, usually you need to make your way through a good uh, bit of trail before you get to the vista or the lookout or whatever it is. <laughs> We're going to start at the trailhead next week. But in God's grace, this trailhead begins with a glorious vision of the celestial city already laid out before us. And he's going to give us Jesus Christ and all of his majesty and glory, even before you start out. So this trail begins with a glorious view. Immediately as we go into the book, we are given a glimpse of the glory and Godhood of the Son of God. And so that's what we will draw our attention to next week. There'll be plenty of challenging sections on this trail. Okay? But they will pay off for you if you. Stick with it and take them seriously. The spiritual dividends will be tremendous, I pray and expect. So that's the plan for us. But remember, the aim of all of our study through this book is to stir up our faith in Christ so that we all with firm assurance will persevere with hope until the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father... Uh, I'm excited to preach through this book of Hebrews. Thank you for the opportunity. God, I do ask that you would bless it, that all of us would have clarity on what it's teaching, that we would have serious joy, not a frivolous joy, not an unrooted or ungrounded joy, but a real joy in Christ. Give us eyes to see and hearts to feel the, the word that is being preached, and we ask your blessing upon it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.